0: Uh, just last week, I heard the story of a, of a businessman, a very successful businessman, and uh, a very able public speaker. Consequently, he was often asked to speak at functions and, and dinners, and his speeches were always humorous, engaging, and and very insightful. But what few people realised about this man was that all his speeches were written by his secretary. He would simply give her the subject; she would write the speech, type it up, and put it in his briefcase. All he needed to do was take the speech out as he arrived at the function and then read it. And it all worked very well. It was a great arrangement. Until his secretary began to get a little disgruntled. You see, the businessman never thanked her. All this work she did for him, and he never said thank you. And she was so fed up with it uh, and the way that she was treated that she decided to teach him a lesson. So another function came around with another speech to be written. She duly popped the text into his briefcase and sent him off. He arrived at the venue, took the speech out of his briefcase and looked out at the assembled crowd and then he began. The subject before us today is extremely important but immensely complicated and I have 15 points to make. And to his horror, he turned over the page to find just five words. You're on your own now. Uh, my wife and I are, are investors in, in Northern Rock. <laughs> you can probably see the link. Over the years, we've, uh, we've put a little aside for a rainy day, or if it never rains, to help us in our retirement. And you know how it is. Uh, our bank balance, modest as it is, gave us a sense of security. That even if we fell on hard times, things would be okay. But of course, last week, all that changed. But for the intervention of Alistair Darling, it is amazing that a man with that name has done so well in life, isn't it? But but for the intervention of Alistair Darling and the Bank of England, we could well have lost a lot. And we'd have found ourselves, well, not destitute, but on our own now, with nothing financially speaking to prop us up. Now at this harvest time, we find Jesus telling a parable uh, about that very problem, of suddenly finding that, that when you come face to face with the living God, you discover that you're on your own now. That the, the little deposits that we've made with God throughout life have amounted to nothing. see, James talked about it when he was saying about his story, how he would perhaps go to church, he'd, he'd do little things. And, and often we think those things are like little deposits to God, maybe good things that we do, kind things that we do to others. Are they good things to do? And we think, well, they're little deposits. Be a, when it comes to that time when I meet God, it'll be okay, because I've I put something in the bank with God. Now this uh, harvest parable here, Jesus doesn't speak in terms of banking because it's a harvest parable. He doesn't talk in terms of banking and money but crops and agriculture. And while here in the 21st century in in Sheffield we we may be more familiar with the fiscal than farming, even the most ardent city dwellers and and the least green-fingered among us can understand the the very simple agricultural analogy here. Look back to the reading that Paul read for us uh, just a little bit earlier. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. It's a very simple picture. Today we might call it bioterrorism. Somebody has tampered with the crops. And what would have been a terrific wheat harvest has been infected with weeds. So the field is full of wheat and weeds growing together. It's a simple picture, but it is also a brilliant picture of the world we live in. A world created by God, the farmer, but ruined by evil, the enemy. A world of good and evil growing side by side. Now, that's exactly the world we live in, isn't it? A world that is simultaneously incredibly good and unbelievably evil. so at harvest time, when we traditionally meet to give thanks for all the good things in this world, it isn't difficult to think of things that we want to be grateful for. See, living on the edge of of the Peak District as we do, I find myself often marvelling at the fantastic countryside all around us. The rolling hills, the spectacular colour of the heather in bloom, the simple pleasure of seeing little lambs leaping in the fields. There is so much to thank God for at harvest time. From the wonder of creation to the, to the provision of our, our, our daily needs. The abundant food in our supermarkets, homes to live in, friends and family to enjoy life with, the things that Jody was praying about earlier in our service. This is a good world. And I don't know about you, but on a day off, walking in the hills, sometimes I just stop and look around, soak it all up and think to myself, it is good just to be alive. We live in a good world. And yet, as I read the newspapers, I'm reminded that this is a bad world. Bad things happening to little girls on holiday. Bad things going on in the office on Monday. Bad people blowing up innocent people. Bad people luring vulnerable people into a life of drug addiction. I mean, we could go on and on. We see the evidence of this mixed world of good and evil everywhere, even in the world of sport. Watch a game of football, and the beautiful game can be pulsating and thrilling and so pleasurable, and yet in an instant it can become so ugly. One bad challenge and there's a mass brawl with players at each other's throats. Watch a game of rugby. It can be the most exciting and fluent game when it's played properly, and an England play. You know. <laughs> What about you, as the, as the World Cup has progressed, I'm rapidly uh, rediscovering my Welsh roots, but uh, that's for another time. <laughs> what I see in the world and in sport, I see in people, I see it in myself, I see it in my children. They can be the most delightful little angels. Joshua, our, our four and a half year old, totally out of the blue, looked at me today and said, Daddy, I love you. Just uh, totally out of the blue, it's wonderful. I told Beth our seven year old to clear up the playroom the other day, and she did it. And then she went on and cleared up her bedroom as well. I mean, it was amazing. Children could be the sweetest, most delightful little people. They could be kind and funny and thoughtful and generous, but boy, can they be naughty. <laughs> they can be the most awful little monsters, horrible and spiteful and so nasty. See, we, we've got, we live in a world that is, is full of good and full of evil, and that's what Jesus is talking about in this Harvest Parable. You know, one of the cruelest places on the planet it's the school playground. Just watch children playing. Oh, oh, sure, they play wonderfully and there can be such happiness, and the sound of ch- children laughing is delightful. But the playground can be the most cruel place where these so called innocent little ones are spiteful and selfish and malicious and mean, where they say the most nasty things, and where little lives can be devastated and damaged for years to come. The playground demonstrates the enigma of this world, so wonderful and yet so horrible. And here in just three verses, verses 24, 25, and 26, Jesus brilliantly shows us our world as it really is. A world that was made good by a good God, but a world that is full of weeds, evil sown by God's enemy. That's the world as it is. A few years ago, at a service very similar to this, a friend of mine, Julie, told the congregation why she was a Christian very similarly to the way that James did for us earlier. She gave a whole host of reasons why she followed Jesus, but one thing she said really struck a chord. She said this. At university, I began to seriously question what life was all about. And as I looked into different philosophies and religions, I found in the Bible a description of the world as it really is and an explanation for why the world is as it really is. She continued, the Bible describes and explains the world in a way that makes sense of life as no other worldview does. And that's what's going on in these simple words at the beginning of this harvest parable. And what the Bible tells me about the world, it tells me about myself too. I too am an enigma capable of good and yet also and often, often shot through with bad. I've recognised it hugely since I became a dad. When I look into my children's bedrooms last thing at night I see them fast asleep there, I tuck them up for the night and at that moment I feel overwhelming love towards them I feel nothing but protective As a dad I've known great moments of selflessness I'd do anything for them, make great sacrifices for them not because I'm a terrific dad, that's just how you feel as a dad and yet other times I find myself incandescent with rage towards them Sometimes they deserve my wrath, but sometimes I'm simply in a bad mood. I am a little example of the world we live in, and we all are, capable of great good and yet full of selfishness and greed and anger. Not that we like to admit it, of course. We do so like to present ourselves in the best light. I think of a, a young businessman, a guy who, who fancied himself as a bit of an entrepreneur. He just set up business on his own in in new offices, and sitting in his brand new office on on this first Monday at work, uh, he heard someone coming up the stairs. Of course, he was keen to impress, so so he picked up the telephone as the visitor entered the office, and he pretended to be discussing some multi-million deal. Finally, after about five minutes of of faking high powered negotiations on contracts, down payments on, on bank guarantees and investments he, he put the phone down a, and faced his visitor. I'm very sorry about that he said crucial call, big investment how can I help you? The visitor looking a little embarrassed said I've come to connect the phones for you <laughs> You see it, it's there in all of this isn't it? There's this, this great desire to impress other people we, we soon learn what to do to look good. But if we're honest, we're not the people that others see. Every one of us is a mixed bag. Yes, we can do great good. No, no, no doubt there's much to celebrate in our lives, much we can be proud of, maybe a faithful relationship, perhaps great sporting achievements, a flourishing career, a loving home and family, acts of kindness. There's much that's good in our lives. But if you're like me and if you're being honest tonight, there's also a lot you're going to be ashamed of. The times we've hurt people, the relationships we've ruined, the occasions we've just acted out of selfishness, the things that go on behind closed doors, the skeletons in our cupboard, the things others know nothing about, even our spouse, or the things we think. If we're honest, we're not the people we like to project. Uh, Barry Humphreys, the man who is... Dame Edna Everidge. is wonderfully honest in his introduction to his autobiography. He says this Vanity plays lurid tricks with our memory as Conrad has observed. But the well-intentioned biography or earnest thesis can also play lurid tricks with the truth as its author squeezes and pummels his subjects to fit a convenient or fashionable theory. He goes on As I began this task aspiring to total candor, it is inevitable that I will rearrange the facts of my life in an attractive tableau, in much the same way as we uh, arrange our features when we're about to be photographed. In that fraction of a second before the shutter clicks, our faces undergo a subtle but dramatic transformation. I'm sure that all authors, however bent on frankness, also perform some last-minute act of moral titivation before embarking on self-portraiture. Now what Humphreys describes the author doing is, if we're honest, a description of something we all do in our lives every day. Walk out of the front door, into the office, or into the lecture theatre, or as we meet our mates and we present ourselves in the best light, the public face is, is rearranged, resulting in a subtle but dramatic transformation. And so we become experts at concealing the real me, But Jesus calls for honesty. We we are, like the parable, a great mixture of potential and appalling reality. And the biggest problem in all of us is that we we push the living God out to the wings. See, harvest time is a time when we do traditionally remember all the good things God has given us. It's a time when we're thankful. And it's good to be thankful. Having young children, uh, thankfulness is a big thing in our family. The children are getting better at it, but uh, at saying thank you, but we still have to work hard with them. Uh, at my parents, for a meal, Bethan said, uh, Grandma, pass the tomato sauce. Uh, as mum stretched for the, ca- the ketchup bottle, I said, wait a minute, Grandma. Uh, and as I turned to Bethan, I said, Now, Bethan, what should you say? Grandma, pass the tomato sauce. To which Bethan replied, Grandma, pass the tomato sauce Now. At the same meal, Susanna's not much better. As Grandma brought in a tray of dessert, Susanna piped up, I want jelly and ice cream, I want jelly and ice cream. Again I intervened. Now, now come on, Susanna, what's the magic word? She looked at me rather puzzled and said, abracadabra. <laughs> I mean, it's impossible with them, saying, but saying thank you is important. We're teaching our children to say thank you because it's light, polite, because, because we like people who are grateful. Indeed, we think it's rude if people don't say thank you. And so at harvest time, we remember to, to, to thank God for the many good things that have come from his hand. But honestly tonight, how often do we say thank you to God? He gives us so many good things, and, and we are so slow to thank him. And that is the big problem that Jesus points out in this harvest parable. we haven't got it printed on here but uh, when Jesus explains this parable just a little bit on in the Bible and if you've got the Bible open then you can turn it on but you don't need to I'll read it to you just over the page he says this in verses 37 and 38 he explains the parable and he says the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man speaking of himself the field is the world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom the weeds are the sons of the evil one the good seed The wheat, says Jesus, stands for the sons of the kingdom. Those who turn to follow the living God. And the weeds are those who don't. And you see, Jesus then tells us the root of the problem with the world. The root of the problem is ignoring the creator of the world. Taking all the good things that God gives us and ignoring him the giver. And so Jesus says here, real goodness and evil is seen in our response to him. Whether I put the living God at the heart of my life, allow him to direct all I do, just as James was speaking about earlier, suddenly he thought, hey, what about the future? What about this time when I'm going to meet God? Am I ready to to meet him? Am I going to let him direct the rest of my life? allowing him to direct all that I do, to be taught by him, how I spend my time and my money, how I treat my friends and my foes, what, motive, what motivates my decisions, what drives me in life. And you see, Jesus in this harvest parable warns us if we push the living God to the edge of life, then there will come a time when he'll say, you're on your own now. For Jesus speaks here, if you look at verse 30 uh, on, the, on the service order, He speaks here of a cosmic final harvest day, a final harvest. You'll see it there, verse 30. He speaks of the harvest. Let both grow together until the harvest. Now this harvest that Jesus is speaking about is a day when Jesus will return, not as a baby, but in all power, and he will judge the world. He'll put all wrongs right when he'll bring justice and equity to this world once and for all. And that is both a wonderful truth and a terrifying prospect. First, it is a wonderful truth. Do you have the same experience that I do when I watch the television news and I, I see the terrible things that are happening in our world? I find myself longing for something to change. I long for the world to be different, for for some good news for once. Do you ever feel that way? Well, I know others feel that way, because often people ask, ask me, because I'm the vicar, they say, why doesn't God do something about this evil? It's a great question. Now, this parable is wonderful, because it says he will do something about it. It promises that one day he will gather up all evil, all the weeds, verse 30, and he will burn them. That is a wonderful truth the thought that all evil will be punished and banished but it is also a terrifying prospect because as we've already said if we'll be honest like like Barry Humphreys when we're not hiding behind our rearranged public face we have to admit that we are far from being the people we should be yes we've relegated the living God to to be something of a footnote in our lives and that really is the worst thing that anyone can do And so naturally, we are the weeds in this parable, and we're not the wheat. So when Jesus does come and judge the world, we too will face that judgment. And if we're on our own now, we can't face that day confidently. And that's why this final harvest hasn't come yet. See, look again at what Jesus says in this harvest parable. Look at verse 27. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Again, it's the picture, wheat and weeds growing together. It's a problem. I am hopeless at gardening. I don't mind doing it. In fact, I quite like doing it, pottering around the garden but I'm seriously horticulturally challenged. I can't tell weeds from plants. That's a pretty serious thing when you're, when you're gardening. My wife quakes when I get the gardening fork out because I'm sure to pull up plants thinking they're weeds and she's probably only just planted them. But even for the most experienced gardeners, sometimes weeds and plants are so entwined that to pull out the weeds, you will pull out the plants too. That is the picture here in this parable. In the original here, the word for wheat tells us these plants are, are darnel, And I'm told that darnel, when growing, appears very similar to wheat. Very difficult to tell them apart. Again, that's how the world is. Good and evil growing together. In sport, in commerce, in nature, in politics, and even in people. We are a complicated mixture. It is difficult, if not impossible, to separate the two. And because good and evil are so entwined in this world, to root out evil will inevitably mean pulling up the wheat too. And that's verse 29. While you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. So yes, says Jesus, there will be a day when God will put all wrongs right. A day when he will judge all evil. And that is the harvest that all harvest festivals point to. That is the harvest of verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. That will be a completely new beginning in the world. A complete transformation. But that day will come. It will come, promises Jesus. And until that day, God is being wonderfully patient and amazingly kind, he is waiting. He is waiting for more people to turn back to him. See, do you not think that if you and I feel when we watch the television news, do you not think that if we feel devastated by the things we see, that he does not feel it infinitely more as he sees everything in his world? Of course he does. Why does he not come and end the world like that now? He is being patient. He doesn't want to come in judgement until more people have had chance to follow him. I haven't asked James this question, but I, I will one day. Uh, but I, I would guess that James would be pleased that God didn't return when he was uh, a 16-year-old. I am so pleased God is patient and kind like this because uh, he didn't return in judgment before 1983. Because you see, it was in 1982 that I was a normal 19-year-old enjoying life pursuing a career in the newspaper business playing tons of sport, football, badminton, running, tennis anything I could do, having a good time it was good to be alive I was enjoying all the good things God gives but I barely gave God a second thought oh I believed he existed I went to church from time to time I don't suppose you'd have called me a terribly bad person I put these little deposits in the bank with God but I was actually doing a terrible thing I was ignoring the very one who gave everything that made this world such a good place to live in. And that is no way to treat the living God. And so had Jesus returned for this this cosmic harvest that he speaks about in 1982, I'd have been bundled up with the weeds and been told you're on your own now. How kind of God not to return before I turned to Jesus in 1983 when when I went to a service very similar to this where for the first time I grasped that yeah, I needed to be forgiven. I needed a fresh start with God. Well, I imagine there'll be others who feel that exactly the same thing tonight, just as I did those years back. You've realised that you too have largely been ignoring God in your life. And you're realising that, that you're not really ready for, for, for this harvest that Jesus speaks of here. At this time when he is going to return and he's going to look at all the evil in the world and judge it. The ultimate evil of ignoring God and you're saying I'm not ready for that. And maybe you're saying as I did all those years back it's wonderful to hear about the kindness of God. I can't believe that there can be friendship with God. That I can be forgiven. That's fantastic news. I want to know more about that. Well, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's a number here like that. And uh, I'd like to point you towards these contact cards that are just in front of you in the rows. You'll find them uh, dotted around the church. They're very simple. And uh, if you're saying, I'd like to know more, we've got a course that's going to run here in October. It's on Tuesday nights. It's called Open to Question Christianity Explored. And uh, you'll see that there's a, a, a little Open to Question box on these cards. If you fill your name and address in here just tick the box you can either hand it to me or to Andrew on the way out you can take it home and and put a a stamp on it and and send it in if you don't want to fill it in right now just pop one of those in your pocket fill it in or or hand it back and then come along to to this this course Open to Question, Christianity Explored this course where we'll uh, tell you more about how you can be a friend of God this kind God who's longing waiting for you to come back to him so that you'll be ready for this harvest time and for this time when, well, eventually, you'll be with him for eternity. It's a wonderful thought. Well, thanks so much for listening.